Hello, AJT readers. This is Roz Manon from the University of Nebraska Medical Center here with the March 2023 podcast. Unfortunately, Josh Levitsky was unable to join us today, so I'll be co-hosting this with my colleague, uh, Ali Strauss, an assistant professor of transplant hepatology at Johns Hopkins. Uh, the rundown of the papers today will be as follows. We'll kick things off with a discussion of xenotransplant with milestones on the path to clinical pig organ xenotransplant by Cooper and Pearson, followed by infection and clinical xenotransplantation guidance from the infectious disease community of practice of the AST by Meda and colleagues. Uh, then uh, Ali will join me in talking about disparities in transplantation, addressing sex-based disparities in solid organ transplant in the U.S., a conference report by Sawinski et al., and then another study entitled A Comparison of Deprivation and Disease in Application to Transplant Populations by Park et al. There are a couple of papers we won't be able to do, and I just want to direct you to them. MicroRNA 449A, Ameliorate Acute Rejection After Liver Transplantation by Cow and Colleagues, Again, this is a very this is a basic science uh, paper, but with translational implications. Looking at a specific microRNA 449A and the potential to mitigate acute rejection through uh, biochemical pathway identified and macrophage M1 polarization. The other paper we won't have time to talk about that I want to remind you all was also an editor's pick is anti-HLA antibodies and recipients of CD19 versus BCMA targeted. CAR T-cell therapy by Hill et al. So this is an interesting paper that looks at the effects on anti-HLA antibodies before and after CAR T therapy. The CAR T therapy was specifically directed towards naive and memory B cells, i.e. CD19, which is the CD19-mediated CAR T versus the plasma cell BCMA targeted. And they actually looked at a comparator of a small set of, pop of patients in each of those different trials and compared anti-HLA effects. And even though the numbers are quite small, and this comparison was not driven by having enough N to look at HLA, and HLA antibodies were not always routinely collected pre and post uh, bone marrow transplant or stem cell transplant, it's interesting to see that uh, there was more of an impact of plasma cell therapies. Again, take a look at those. We won't have time to talk about them, but let me move on. I'm going to go ahead and get things started today, and this is a really good issue for those of you that are xenophiles, and even if you're not, I would urge you to read the, these two papers so that you can feel up to date and you can contribute to the conversation. The paper by Cooper and Pearson, both at MGH, Milestones on the Path to Clinical Pig Organ Transplant. This paper is an, an incredible summary of the immunologic hurdles and how they've been managed over time to facilitate clinical pig organ transplantation into people. Um, and they start with work from the 1980s where they identify that the critical risk in these patients was hyperacute rejection. That is rejection happening with minutes to hours to maybe a day, which occurs even on the, on the transplant uh, uh, on the operating table. And hyperacute rejection is facilitated by things called natural antibodies. These are antibodies we all have against other species. We gain them during infancy as a direct response to colonization of GI tract flora by bacteria and other pathogens. Specifically, they express carbohydrate moieties that are important that are expressed in one species versus the other. 
And the other issue in hyperacute is really complement activation, that host injury can be mitigated by altering complement regulatory proteins. And hence, when you look at the timeline of immunologic hurdles on figure one, you can see that the hyperacute rejection issue was really targeted very, very quickly by identifying the important carbohydrate moiety, uh, gal, alpha-1,3, galactose, and also by overexpressing regulatory, complement regulatory proteins like CD55 and CD46. And other um, innovations were also the somatic cell gene transfer in pigs that was developed over the prior two decades. So dissecting each of these aspects down, these authors identify, you know, the importance of immunosuppressive therapy. And you may have heard things such as, oh, well, we're using costimulatory blockade and how that happened. Importantly, prior non-human primate studies showed that cyclosporin itself alone was ineffective in a pig-to-baboon model. And so there became a lot of interest in anti-CD-154 in the early 2000s otherwise known as anti-CD40 ligand, coupled with rapamycin and MMF. And the problem is this first generation uh, anti-CD154 was thrombogenic. And so these mo- this uh, antibody now has been modified, so the FC receptor is less involved in making clots. And so costimulatory blockade of the CD40, CD40 ligand pathway has really become a standard part of these treatments Moedin and, and colleagues used anti-CD40, not CD40 ligand, but again, disrupting that pathway, and a GAL-alpha-1,3 transferase knockout heart, meaning it lacked the GAL-alpha-1,3 galactose, and also had a transgenic gene for CD46, and they were the first to show that you could have a pig heart with those differences and anti-CD40 last in a baboon for three years. I bring this up because this is an important translation into people. This strategy was utilized for the human recipient of the multi-gene knockout pig. And there is some discussion of whether anti-CD154, aka CD40 ligand, is more effective than if you use both anti-CD40 and anti-CD40 ligand, but I don't think that's been identified. Another point in this paper about immunosuppression is that the role of CD28, B71, B72 does not appear to be an important pathway for disruption. Individuals have looked at the benefit of adding CTLA-4IG either as a transgenic expression in the organ, which led accidentally to over-immunosuppression, or using it as additional therapy without any improvement. Talking about xenoantigens, Table 2 identifies the key antigens found in pigs that are problematic, and these already include the galactose we've already talked about, NU56C, which is sialic acid, and also SDA. And there is some discussion in um, the paper that there may be a fourth xenoantigen that has been identified because now with the development of CRISPR-Cas9, which occurred probably in about 2015, you can now knock out these different um, pathways in terms of um, the metabolics, uh, the um, synthetic pathways to avoid those expression. And the other issue in this model, though now we're beyond hyperacute rejection, now we're looking at AMR and, and TCMR is that these organs with their inflammation can lead to thrombotic megrangiopathy. And so, again, the expression of complement regulatory proteins and things like thrombomodulin or protein C receptor tissue factor have been important. So uh, a, a critical triple knockout pig that is often talked about is the GAL-alpha-1,3 galactose knockout with a CD46 transgenic coupled with a thrombomodulin overexpression. 
And this led to eight, eight months of survival of such kidney. So when you're reading papers about these clinical human experiments, it's important to understand in the methods, the background strain. Granted, I don't know, uh, uh, you know, the types of strains of, of swine they're using, but you need to understand the genetic manipulation so that you're able to compare and understand the mechanisms. The 10G knockout has been used in some of the groups of clinical work. And these animals also include overexpression of anti-inflammatory genes like hemoxygenase 1. I don't think that there is complete evidence that all 10 genes need to knock out. But as this review shows, people get used to using and finding good results that when they add something on, they're reluctant to remove the other genes that have been knocked out. So for now, that's a very popular understanding. And I believe Dr. Locke's paper in AJT early this year, uh, early in 2022, uh, shows what those different genes are. There are some other notable challenges in xenotransplant that I think have been raised, and this paper really highlights them again. Organ growth after transplant, it was shown that these pig organs, particularly the heart, grow in the cavity after transplanted non-human primates. And so some of these um, pig strains often have growth hormone knocked out of them to limit this extensive growth. Um, it's probably less of an issue for a kidney where it may be intra-abdominal or, or extraperitoneal, but still something to think about. You know, there's a lot of question about, you know, graft function specifically with a kidney. You know, the kidney has hormones and, and metabolic pathways, and clearly um, recipients of kidneys have been shown to become polyuric. It's unclear whether the erythropoietin from a pig kidney will cross-react and work with a human. It seems as if the EGFR will be okay, but there hasn't been really systematic study of the physiology of these graphs, in particular angiotensin II function. Heart function is sensitive to ischemic injury, probably more so than, uh, um, than in, in standard uh, deceased donor transplant. Uh, and that's, again, another issue that may require that these organs be on pumps, for example, before being transplanted to humans. The rejection focus now has gone uh, to cellular, although I would point out that I think antibody-mediated rejection, if you look at the first few human interactions using brain-dead individuals, has identified AMR, although not in the um, Maryland experiment, which we'll talk about in the next paper. And obviously, infection is really a key issue, and that's a segue to the next paper. So what are the next steps? I think, you know, further heart transplantation with a compassionate approval by FDA is suggested in this paper, recognizing that anti-HLA antibodies cross-react with anti-SLA, swine-associated uh, antibodies and their cross-reactivity and work by, by Tector and Ladowski have looked at this problem uh, in vitro. You know, is this something for peds congenital heart disease? I think you know, from an ethical perspective, we're very careful about transplanting children. You know, are we talking about kidney recipients unlikely to get a deceased donor? I'm not sure exactly what that means anymore, because if it's someone that's highly sensitized, that can be a problem with uh, developing ABMR. Or is it someone that, you know, may be waiting on the list for too long before they die? And, you know, this is a rigorous transplant. And having someone that's maybe quite a bit older, whatever that means, that may have lack of a physical capacity or have been on dialysis for a very long time may not work. 
you know, providing sufficient follow-up is important. The brain-dead donor experiments do not provide that. And certainly proof of concepts can exist for cell and tissue transplant. I'd also point out in a recent podcast, the discussion of offering this as an alternative to deceased donor transplantation in, in in a diversity equity fashion, it would be important to highlight that recipients um, that may get these organs are going to expect at least similar outcomes to uh, a human organ. And so we need to be careful in that regard. The next article is a special article by Sapna Ameda and colleagues from the IDCOP, Infection and Clinical Xenotransplantation. Again, a very thoughtful piece, not super long. You can read it in an evening and you'll be well informed. I think we're very familiar with assessing immunological uh, uh, infectious risk uh, between donor and recipients in terms of microbiology, potential pathogenic organisms. We have standardization of that. We have it in both the donors as well as in the recipients. We also have post-transplant testing and prophylactic treatments as well. So xenotransplant hosts can also be affected not only by um, uh, newly acquired pathogens, but also by latent disease. And so safety in xenotransplant is going to be enhanced by development of new microbiological assays for detection and exclusion of potential pathogens, granted that these swine are raised in these isolation facilities. And current testing and treatment is really derived from the food chain, food supply, where the monitoring and diagnosis of recipient of, of infection has already been identified. So this paper really focuses on strategies that could potentially be implemented in clinical transplantation to limit complications post. There's one figure, it's called the Pillars of ID, Infectious Disease Protocols, really identifies the different uh, areas that are focus of this paper and may serve as a guidance for the development of swine as an organ. Uh, and, and that requires really basing it on animal health, plus the estimated risks of the development of disease that would occur in an immunosuppressed human. So uh, again, there's some terminology, common pathogens to be excluded are termed specific pathogen free, and this ensures pig health status and is really, again, derived from food production and the notion of how animals are being utilized in the food supply. And this is, um, you know, equates to careful screening for viral exposures or drug resistant organisms, you know, and it's the limited use of antimicrobials post, you know, that as pigs are being raised for food, sterile feed, specified vaccines and, and biosecure facilities. But the next level is what was called designated pathogen free status. And this is identified in the table. And much of, of this DPF is based on similar organisms as seen in human transplantation. I think the, that as we'll talk, the porcine endemic viruses are probably much less studied. The manifestations are not well characterized and are affected by immunosuppressive treatment of the host. And we have really limited diagnostic assays. And I would say that these porcine endemic viruses were really what affected the further development. It really was a, a, a punch in the gut to those that were doing xenotransplant in the mid-90s and up to about 2000. The main viruses are, are porcine CMV. There is porcine circoviruses. These viruses don't affect human cells, but they do affect the graft. They can infect the graft. They can cause dysfunction. And as such, they can uh, contribute to systemic syndromes uh, in the host that are inflammatory and maybe cause hyperactivation of the immune response. 
P, uh, porcine CMV is not affected by King Cyclovir. Its infection occurs in endothelial cells, so it leads to tissue factor release, which can cause a systemic consumptive coagulopathy like TMA, and ultimately lead to accelerated rejection. Now, in this recent heart transplant in Maryland, you may recall that PCMV was identified as a key feature in the demise of the patient in graft. You know, prior to transplant, it was it was not detected by navel swab or Buffy code, and the recipient received gangcyclovir prophylaxis, as outlined in this paper. And but it was identified, you know, in identifying it by plasma microbial cell-free DNA antigen testing occurred post-transplant. So uh, spleen sample after transplant and and recipient PBMCs were positive, indicating there was a latent CMB infection that recrudesced after transplantation. And obviously, there's no specific serologic or NAT testing yet available. Importantly, this paper outlines the four CMV strains. I'm not going to get into all of that information right now, but certainly there is no known transmission of this porcine CMV uh, that we know of. The other really complex uh, uh, swine viruses are these porcine endogenous retroviruses. This is probably when I referred to earlier as killing the field. This was what everybody was worried about. And particularly on the heels of the, of the identification of HIV in the mid to late 80s and the development of new treatments, there are several types, PERV A, B, and C, makes it easy to remember. PERV C affects pigs, but A and B can infect human cells. And there are two receptors, and the receptors are widespread. Interestingly, in baboons, those receptors are inactive. And so knocking out those receptors is one strategy to mitigate the development and, and cross uh, species uh, infection uh, certainly has been identified. So selective breeding of PERV-C-free pigs, selecting of donors lacking these genes, you know, additional knockouts of, of those genes or PERV polymerase may be one strategy. Moving on to testing, you know, obviously multiplex PCR of viral targets is used, but hasn't been validated in humans. There's no commercial tests. You know, porcine CMV may react with HHV6. So if you're trying to pick it up or you're testing someone that's ill, you may get cross-reactivity. And obviously next-gen sequencing is really probably the way to go with that's pathogen agnostic. How do you monitor? There's currently insufficient data to specify optimal assays, the frequency and timing. The choice should be guided by prophylactic treatment and anticipated pathogens in the recipient and the source animal based on pre-transplant evaluation. Certainly, this group advocates for increased testing for periods around infection syndromes or in the setting of augmentation of immunosuppressive therapy. Serologic testing is not sufficient and they support next-gen sequencing and recipient education is important because certainly, you know, if, if some of these things do affect humans, then is there an opportunity for contact, there, you know, contacts being affected? From a treatment perspective, there, given the homology of porcine CMV to HHV6, certainly in vitro, cydofovir may work, probably does, but gangcyclovir and farscarnat do not. There's another porcine virus called lymphotropic herpes virus, PLHV, which causes swine ETLD. That has no tr treatment, and I didn't really talk much about it. I think PERV is the biggest concern, but hasn't been seen. Certainly looking at things that are anti-HIV, like zidovudine, um, tenofovir, 
maybe in RTIs, maybe in combo with an integrase inhibitor are, are possibility. And finally, we have to think about uh, body fluid exposure, post-exposure prophylaxis, whether it's the staff, caregivers, other contacts. So a, a lot of information today, I, I would summarize by saying that the conclusion of, of Dr. Maida's paper is many unmet needs, more data needs to be collected. Certainly a fascinating area right now, and I urge you, the readers, to go ahead and, and take advantage of those papers. Okay, Ali, um, I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Let me let you take it over. Thank you for this opportunity to chat with you about this article by Dr. Sawinski called Addressing Sex-Based Disparities in Solid Organ Transplantation in the United States, a conference report. So this came after uh, June 25th in 2021. They had a multidisciplinary conference where they were discussing the sex-based disparities that we see in transplantation. Um, and, you know, this is built on top of that OPTN policy that states that allocation of organs must not be influenced by many things, one of which is sex. And unfortunately, the research is showing that there's several, many disparities in access to transplantation for women. So that's what they wanted to explore. And, you know, the National Academies of Science, Engineering and Medicine had also highlighted this importance for equity in transplantation. And there's also this ongoing discussion and development of these continuous allocation systems for each of the organs. And it's sort of unclear until it's actually in action what it's going to mean for women and, and these disparities. So that's was sort of the main motivations for this conference getting together. And you got to applaud all these experts. It's a long author list of, of many experts across the field, many of which have written these papers that are showing these disparities. You know, in terms of novel methods, it's, it's mainly just getting a, a sense for what they gathered during their conference when they met and coming up with some potential solutions or research questions that can be asked. And it's nicely outlined in the paper going through each of the organs and talking about where women might be experiencing issues that lead to these disparities that we're seeing. And I thought the way they laid it out was really nice going through, you know, some organs more than others, the immunological barriers, the systemic barriers. And it was nice because you could see the commonalities. As someone like me that does liver, it was nice to read about these other organs and say, you know, A, learning about issues that they face and seeing how they're different or similar to what we see. Uh, so that way we could all be working together on the things that do overlap. So sort of going through some of the, the highlights from the organs, they, they talk about how there's based off 2020 numbers, there were more men than women on the wait list and more men that were recipients for kidneys. And they talk about how there's additional points that correspond to the degree of HLA sensitization. And so uh, this allosensitization can occur during pregnancy, which is one of the mechanisms for why they feel that it, it might be impacting women and, and leading to disparities down the road. And this leads to an issue with living donation, since most people do get their donor candidates from their spouses or their children. Um, so this HLA incompatibility can be an issue. And then they bring up that referring physicians maybe needing to educate patients more about living donation and encourage it more and kidney paired donation um, and the possibility of incompatible transplants and desensitization maybe needing to be brought up more, more commonly. And then other things they brought up for kidney, these systemic barriers about women more likely to be perceived as frail, having lower socioeconomic status, 
that their social support is judged in, as inadequate more frequently than their male counterparts, and that they have competing interests to actually getting through the evaluation process. They also talk briefly about the intersectionality going on here between women and underrepresented populations, that they might face additional challenges. So I thought those were great points about kidney. And then they, they dove next into liver. Same thing showing those 2020 numbers, 60.9% of waitlisted people were male and 63.2% of the recipients were male. Um, and then women experienced the higher waitlist mortality than men. So they talk about MELD, which has been a hot topic these days uh, for many reasons, that the MELD sodium underestimates mortality risk in women, likely due to the creatinine. So they talked about using creatinine as opposed to the GFR, which is sex adjusted. And then they talked about using things like cystatin C or other investigational biomarkers. They talked about the MELD exception points for HCC. So HCC is two to four times higher in men. And so they talked about how, how men get exception points for that. And then the MELD 3.0, that's up and coming. And hopefully that's going to lead to addressing a lot of these disparities we see for liver. But, you know, we won't know until it's actually in use what it will mean uh, for weightless mortality and things along those lines. They talked also about for, for liver, about sex uh, size mismatch and uh, how women have access to fewer size appropriate deceased donors. And they brought up the issues of women receiving pediatric donors as first offers, obviously after children. And when that does happen, they have equal mortality on the wait list. So it is something that, you know, when we make it work, it, it helps. So maybe we should be doing that more often. And they also spoke about split livers, living donation, all, all being things that we could be doing more frequently. So that way we can find more suitable sizes. And then again, similar to kidney, they talked about frailty um, and that it's being more commonly said that women are frail and that we need more objective measures and not just sort of the eyeball tests that we talk about. That they look frail. Then they went into heart and lung. And again, you know, it was actually I was pretty shocked by the numbers. Seventy seven point five percent of the waitlisted patients are men and seventy three point four recipients were men. So definitely seeing higher numbers there for heart. They've changed their allocation system from a three to a six tier system in 2018, which did improve some rates for women. Um, but the sensitization issue that the heart folks see in addition to the kidney folks was not addressed. And there's no sensitization points, like I mentioned, there were for kidney. So they went into talking about men are diagnosed with heart failure earlier and at a higher rate, but women actually have higher mortality. They're less frequently referred and their symptoms go under-recognized, which I think we've, we've seen, you know, throughout the heart literature for a while now. And then talking about the similarities between organs, again, bringing up, you know, these complex children, family support, finances, all perceived as, you know, liabilities for women during the eval phase. And the heart folks actually have their, the LVAD consideration was interesting because they say less women are getting LVADs, only 21% of the people that get LVADs are women. And that actually plays a role in your prioritization to getting a donation allocation. So that is definitely something that they were saying should be targeted to getting, understanding those issues to getting women LVADs. And then again, with frailty, seeing that also in, in the cardiac patients that women seem to be diagnosed with frailty more commonly. Lung was a lot closer. There's actually more women on the wait list than men. That was the only organ that showed that. But um, 58.7 of the recipients were men. So more women on the wait list, but 
Mormon getting organs. And so they talked about the LAS calculation and how they do their allocation, how it includes height and creatinine. And those are things that are definitely going to play a role. It doesn't include sensitization they brought up. So they talked about the issue of that's uh, small for size that we talked about with liver. They have a similar issue with lung and the thoracic cavity. And um, actually doing pneumo reductions can help, but they're hard. <laughs> As you can imagine, you know, it prolongs the surgery and it involves a lot of planning. You need the expertise. You know, After going through all the organs, they had this really great table I highly recommend taking a look at that goes through the research priorities that need to be answered, some questions that need to be answered, such as what is the best measure for donor size of the abdominal or thoracic cavity? What's the best method for determining kidney function was there for all the organs. So in summary, you know, these are barriers to referral and waitlisting for women across all organs, some pitfalls in, involving creatinine, size mismatch, frailty, and higher prevalence of allosensitization in women. So these actionable solutions to improve access to transplantation, um, you know, they've identified some potential but definitely more conversations need to be had and including alternations uh, to the allocation system, which, you know, we're going to see those changes happening soon and have to measure surgical interventions for donor organs um, for the small to size, and then incorporating objective measures for frailty metrics into the evaluation process. Those are some of the core things I took away from uh, the article that we should be focusing on to to really address this, this gender disparity. Really great article. Thanks. Thanks for such a nice uh, summary of a long paper with a lot of details. And, um, you know, I agree with you. I think this was a terrific conference inspired by women in transplant and a lot of the activities they're doing around the globe where the challenges are also include, you know, low and middle income countries where transplant programs don't really exist. Did they talk much about obesity and the limitations, you know, that Women and obesity oftentimes go a little bit hand in hand, maybe maybe more so than men. Did they talk about the biases in terms of of that candidacy or not mostly was focusing on frailty, it sounds like? Yeah, no, they did bring that up. I believe it was with liver. Yeah, with liver, they did bring up the national trends in obesity and that that leads to vascular and biliary complications. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that definitely, they, we don't like to say that there's a max BMI. It, it's, you know, the surgeons are able to, to make things work. And there's, there's consistently studies coming out that are looking at, you know, how much of a risk is it? How high can you go with a BMI to do a safe surgery? Um, but they did bring up that it does sometimes lead to some vascular and biliary complications. And and you talk a lot about implicit bias. I mean, the notion of liability for women in terms of socioeconomic status, social considerations, you know, being the, pri- I mean, I remember the first living unrelated donor we were considering at, at Duke years and years ago as a fellow. And, you know, the comment was, well, she can't donate to him because he, you know, she's got to take care of the family. And, you know, those kinds of comments were made. And so still, and I wasn't even a parent then or married. And I sort of went, really? Because I came from a family of, of women, many of whom worked full time and and contributed to the community's health as as nurses and so they worked and or and my my husband's family was all teachers so i thought that was a little bit odd but it sounds like this is really a paper people can dig into look for the commonalities and maybe give them an opportunity to focus cuz i see table 2 has the research questions so 
Great. Very nice summary. And let, let's go to your next paper. Yes, for sure. I, I did want to just comment on on the comment about women and, and you know, in the eval process. It's interesting because sometimes you do see the opposite side where it's like, oh, she's a, a mom with three kids. And, you know, we, we need to save do her, everything to her kids. Right. Yeah. So you do kind of see that other side where we're a little bit biased and, you know, maybe it's the people with kids having the comments where it hits them a little different differently. But um, so you do see a little bit like that, whereas the, their counterparts would be, you know, the young single uh, gentleman that, you know, we have our biases because of all the stigmas. And this is where our implicit bias plays a role where, you know, if it's alcohol related liver disease and a, a young gentleman without children, you know, that's not the, the, the three kids at home isn't pulling at the heartstrings as much. So I do think there's a lot to unpack here. It's definitely, I think it, it leans more on the side that they discuss in the paper, but there's, there's certainly some intersectionality on socioeconomic status and, and, you know, gender isn't, isn't straightforward. So I mean, sex maybe, but we had, that was probably not even addressed in there is, is the issues we're now starting to see of people that have had gender changes and, um, you know, it's more than just how they are addressed. It's just sort of these biological changes that you're working through as well. So I think more to come and, and again, more opportunity for thoughtful investigators and clinicians to, to think about it and think about changing practice and or, you know, looking in the literature more in terms of that. Yeah, that's a great point. That could be a whole another paper on um, of the sexual orientation, gender identity that plays a role in, in disparities as well, and just things to be considering for post-transplant immunosuppression and things like that. So definitely a great point. All right. All right. Well, now we'll get to your next paper. Yeah, yeah. So this next paper, excited to tell you about. So Dr. Park and this paper on a comparison of deprivation indices and application to transplant populations. So regarding the, you know, their motivation and background for this paper, there's a lot of research growing, looking at neighborhood influence on transplant outcomes. The community de deprivation is an important aspect of social determinants of health in transplant. And, uh, you know, it can be influenced by infrastructure, resources. It can be their physical environment, their built environment, community members in their neighborhood and their socioeconomic statuses. And all of this can influence policies in their area and, and influence other members in their society and, and lead to these structural inequities that we're seeing. So there's many factors that people consider that make up your neighborhood and, and how and the social determinants of that. So these indices are being used. And that, that's where this paper is sort of like, OK, let's take a pause. There's lots of these indices being developed and papers that are, you know, even randomly coming up with their own compilation of, of variables from the community surveys. So let's let's look to compare these indices and see what are they actually telling us. And it can really change our inference depending on which of these indices we use. So they aim to determine the degree of correlation among deprivation indices that are commonly used. They had several novel methods. So um, I will touch on a little bit to sort of build how they did this because it was really great. So they used transplant referral regions derived from Dr. Ross Driscoll's paper where they define 59 of these transplant referral regions. And um, they use GPS coordinates to where the transplant center is. 
and they combine centers that are within a 10 mile radius of each other. And um, they're looking at their waitlist entries and they're linking these transplant uh, referral regions to the deprivation indices by using the intersection with the spatial, the spatial data that they're able to get. And then once they have this data linked, which is not an easy task, they then use pairwise correlation between the different deprivation indices and population weighted medians, as well as 75th percentiles to look at these different scores from various ways. And they are looking at the, the indices they looked at were the social deprivation index, social vulnerability index, area deprivation index, and comparing those, they were able to, the, the main findings that they found were the pairwise correlation was highest between the SDI and the SVI at 0.88. And it was actually lowest between the ADI or the area deprivation and the SDI at only 0.51. Uh, so the ADI had the lowest correlation with the other measures. The reason that this is important is because understanding the extent of these social deprivation indices within the context of their referral areas, these transplant referral regions, can help inform the centers in those regions' prioritization of resources and help to guide policies and initiatives, such as if they're going to do community outreach or be able to gauge their social support better or, or how they can help how they can help them or provide better clinical care for certain areas that, that might need, need more assistance. And this is where you start to see if we're able to understand these things better, we can provide more equitable care. They did find that there's wide variability in the correlation. So it ranged anywhere from 0.19 to 0.95 across all the different transplant referral regions for liver. And then for kidney, it was along the same line, 0.8. 1.5 to 0.95. So that, that just goes to show you that there wasn't great correlation among these four, these measures. Describing four commonly used deprivation indices. One is the area deprivation index or the ADI. There was the social deprivation index or the SDI, the neighborhood deprivation index, the NDI, and the social vulnerability index, the SVI. In regards to the ADI having the lowest correlation with the other indices, so there were sort of, they sort of dug into that a little bit in their discussion, which I liked because for one, the area deprivation index, they point out how it uses census block group as opposed to census tract. And they had to sort of finagle the ADI to be able to be measuring the same area as the other indices that they looked at. And so that could have led to some issues and when they were looking at the correlations later. Also, um, the ADI has several unique variables that are related to household conditions that the other indices don't consider. So the fact that it doesn't correlate with them, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing if you're interested in those other things that it includes that the others don't. The It also includes data on financial strain with a little bit of higher specificity and it it does not include the percent of what they call minoritized individuals, whereas some of the other indices do. And it does not include language ability, the percent of that area with language ability, whereas the NDI and the SDI and the SVI include some of these other measures. So it's sort of weighing, you know, what is in one index versus another. The, the social vulnerability index 
in terms of other differences between these things. It aims to identify low-resourced communities to support them in case of hazardous events. So sort of the, the reason that they, when they made that index was a little bit different than the other ones. So that was the SVI. The other ones, the ADI, NDI, and SDI, were more about quantifying socioeconomic status of the neighborhood. So in terms of things to consider and, and um, limitations for the paper, they pointed out that there were different calendar years between the indices. So um, they don't all, you know, they're not all looking at the, these variables at the same point in time. So that could lead to some differences because neighborhoods do change over time. And um, the population counts that they used to do the weighting were all from 2018. So whereas the indices for, were from different years, so that's where that could play a role. And um, I think the important things to take away are mainly you have to choose these indices wisely. And they did a great job helping researchers understand the differences. And so you should pick your index based off what you're looking, what fits in your causal framework. And when you're thinking through your conceptual model, what's important for what you're looking at. Uh, another important consideration is the ecologic fallacy that comes with looking at neighborhood measures and, and you know, saying that this patient in front of me comes from this neighborhood and this index says this thing about that neighborhood based off you know, lots of people that are not that patient specifically. So you need to be careful with making, with generalizing things about their neighborhood to that patient. And that's where the size of the neighborhood could play a role and why the ADI is a nice one because census blocks are more specific than census tracts. So you do have, you know, if you look and zip code. So if you look at a zip code, it can be very different across a zip code. Um, so trying to get as as specific to the area that you're that you uh, that you're that you want to look at as possible, and then all of this we need to consider that these are mainly associations. We need to continue to push ourselves to use proper language when we're using these indices about what we're what we're actually concluding. So I think this was a, a great paper to put all of these indices in in uh, line for transplant research that is coming uh, you know more and more frequently down the pipeline and hopefully can help people start off you know you could read this paper and really hit the ground running as opposed to having to learn you know all these different indices that have very similar letters well a great study. summary of a of a complex paper for individuals that typically may not be doing this sort of research so i appreciate it i appreciate the elegance of it of the ability to overlay this on um, Pat Sir and Ross Driscoll's work on the TRs, which we've highlighted this podcast previously. So, and I've been looking at these maps because I've lived in a lot of these places and, and I lived in Durham for a long time. So it's interesting to see the ability to see these vulnerable areas. I think your points are really well taken, particularly even if you're not doing research in this area, that to have a fundamental understanding of the patient population you're trying to serve and the extent of the needs they have. In some ways, that so that social vulnerability index is really fantastic because you think of the crises in the world that have happened, for example, in the United States, whether it's fire or earthquake, flooding, the cold snap and her, you know, last year in Houston. Um, and, and it shows you how and COVID. COVID is the big one, showing you vulnerabilities in in the care system and social systems as well. So I appreciate this. Thanks for helping dumb this down for some of us like me that don't do this kind of research. But um, again, I, I, it's, I think, again, important 
not only for clinical management, but also for those doing research to have a very kind of robust understanding of what they're actually trying to measure and not, as you said, creating like another measure of an index, which would be, I think, more difficult and maybe not as informative, especially with this kind of work. And I'd encourage folks that are reading this and thinking about it, there are extensive supplementary tables for both of these papers and you just have to go to the website and download them. They may not be on, they're not linked on the original paper. You have to go to the website, but you should have access to those. Well, great, Allie, thanks so much. This was really a terrific sort of diverse <laughs> presentation, Zeno, and then um, access to transplant and disparities in access. So um, I'm not sure Zeno will be the answer to all of those issues, however. You know, it seems very desperate, but, you know, they, you could see them going together a little bit because once we do have Xeno down, we need to figure out how to allocate them. And we need to be careful that we do that in an ethical way. So, exactly. You know. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. 